0: You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 2nd of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London, I am Marcus Hippip Coming up, Seoul launches missiles in response to fresh tests by North Korea. Does it represent a dramatic deterioration in their fraught relationship? Also ahead, Monaco senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be here with an update on Jair Bolsonaro and Brazil's presidential election. Plus, Lydia Saad from the U.S. polling agency Gallup will be examining the mood of Americans ahead of next week's midterms.
1: President Biden's job approval rating seems very linked to Americans' weak confidence in the economy.
0: And then we are off to Japan.
2: Hi Marcus, Fiona Wilson in Tokyo here. I'll be telling you how Japan's new anime theme park is hoping to encourage tourists to come back to the country.
0: Much more from Fiona a bit later on. All that and more right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. A North Korean ballistic missile has landed less than 60 kilometres off South Korea's coast, prompting Seoul to issue rare air raid warnings and launch missiles in protest. The South Korean military has said the provocation is an unacceptable breach of its territory. John Nielsen Wright is Korea Foundation Fellow at Chatham House and an associate professor at the University of Cambridge. And he joins us now. Welcome to the programme, John. These missile launches by North Korea have been described as unprecedented. Could you first explain why that is?
3: Well, I mean, there are two things I suppose to note. One is the number of launches. This is the largest single launch of missiles um, in, in in sort of recent memory, but also um, missiles that have crossed the so-called northern limit line Um, which is the maritime demarcation line between North and South Korea. This is the first time we've seen a missile land in South Korean territorial waters since the ending of the Korean War, at least since the armistice of 1953. So there's no doubt that both symbolically and practically, this represents a very real and tangible escalation. Of course, it's happening at a time when South Korea is grappling with the fallout from the awful human tragedy that occurred at Itaewon um, over the weekend, the 153 South Koreans who died. Um, So this is certainly very sensitive. And it's for that reason that we've seen a pretty swift response from President Yun uh, with his own decision to authorize missile launches from South Korea towards the north. Uh, And that, again, represents a further escalation. So there's no doubt that this is um, a significant moment.
0: Is the current administration in Seoul now more assertive than what we have seen before? Can you tell us more about what kind of thinking is taking place in Seoul now?
3: Well, President Yun, um, a conservative president, uh, in keeping with that tradition, has, even before he became president in March of last year, he was making a point as a candidate of insisting that his administration would develop a more Um, robust, if I can put it in those terms, approach towards the DPRK, Uh, a sharp departure from that of his predecessor, President Moon, who was focused much more on on engagement. Um, And as part of that strategy, the UN administration has emphasized the importance of close ties with the United States, its principal alliance partner, the importance of enhancing trilateral cooperation with Washington and also with Tokyo. Um, and also, in terms of its declaratory policy, the South has been very clear to make it uh, unambiguous that further provocations from the North will, um, will result in proportionate responses from the South. Um, and that means a more muscular security policy. Um, at the moment, of course, we are seeing joint exercises between the US and South, country, South Korean military forces on the peninsula, Uh, This might be perhaps one explanation for why the North has decided to act in a way that it has. Um, But generally speaking, the UN administration wants to strengthen deterrence. And of course, it's dealing with a North Korean leader who's young, relatively speaking, and is emboldened by the development of the North's own nuclear capability. We think also that there may be the possibility um, of a seventh nuclear test in the not too distant future, And that's, of course, concentrating mines in the South.
0: Mm. North Korea has even warned that South Korea and the US will face the most horrible price in history if they continue with the current military drills. What do you think Seoul may do next? Obviously, this is not the first time when we are getting aggressive rhetoric from Pyongyang.
3: I think it's important to keep in mind that... um, from the North's point of view, tactically and strategically, um, there are no good options when it comes to thinking about um, how it might leverage its nuclear capacity to impose threats on the South. And of course, this very, very belligerent language is not that dissimilar from the sort of language we've seen coming out of Moscow and uh, President Putin's efforts to to engage in nuclear saber rattling to try and enhance his position in the Ukraine, um, in Ukraine, rather. Uh, I think the South, the North rather, is um, engaging in similar belligerence, perhaps emboldened by the position that Putin has been taking. Um, I don't think it amounts to much because the North will know from the very public statements, not only by South Korea, by the United States, that any willingness to use its nuclear assets would invite swift and catastrophic destructive response from the United States. Um, but it doesn't stop it from trying to use the bully pulpit of declaratory policy to try and not only put pressure on the south but also make it clear that the north isn't going away Um, and of course here we are barely a week away from the midterm elections in the united states the north i think sees um opportunities here to make mischief as an effort to put the democratic administration of joe biden on the back foot in the hope that perhaps this will strengthen the hands of the republicans and looking ahead to the presidential contest a couple of years from now, maybe even uh, facilitate the revival of Donald Trump's fortunes if he were to be a candidate. And of course, former President Donald Trump, um, his policy towards North Korea provided real opportunities for Kim Jong-un. Even the possibility, some have speculated that the North may believe that the United States might be minded to withdraw its forces from the Korean Peninsula if Donald Trump were elected. There are a lot of ifs and conditionals there. But it helps to give us an insight, I think, into the thinking of the North Korean leadership.
0: John, obviously, there is such a long history of provocations by North Korea. Could you try to put these latest developments into some kind of a context?
3: How dangerous is
0: this current situation?
3: I think any time you're dealing with a, a nuclear-armed uh, regime like North Korea, uh, led by an unaccountable authoritarian leader. Um, with a predilection for taking risks, um, you need to take that risk extremely seriously. Um, And particularly at a time when, globally, the United States is facing multiple challenges, um, not least, of course, the situation in Europe, in Ukraine, uh, but also concerns over China's growing military assertiveness and the fate of Taiwan, uh, and wider security concerns in the Indo-Pacific, So this gives the North Korean government and its leadership an opportunity to try and maximize its own advantages. Um, The North, of course, is having to grapple with the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, the slowdown of its own economy, its own vulnerabilities at home, its failure to deliver on some of the economic promises that Kim Jong-un has made to its own people. Engaging in these sorts of military provocations, particularly if the North feels strategically emboldened um runs the risk of escalation and the danger of conflict through miscalculation rather than through design and that's why these sorts of provocations between the two careers are so troubling it was only 12 years ago in 2010 when we saw another crisis in territorial waters contested by the two careers this time in the Yellow Sea or the West Sea, as opposed to the East Sea, where we've seen the bulk of these military launches, these missile launches today. Um, But back in 2010, um, there was a great deal of concern that this would lead to further escalation. Fortunately, that was contained, but I don't think we can minimize the importance of those past precedents and the very different situations that pertain today, not least the fact that the leadership is younger and strategically emboldened by the North's increasing, not just its nuclear capabilities, but its increasing missile sophistication, um, both in terms of range, accuracy, and potentially the the opportunity to deliver a a nuclear warhead on one of those missiles. That was John Nilsson, right from Chatham House.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. It's 12.10 here in London, 8.10 a.m. in Washington, D.C. Now here is Monocle 24's Scarlett Terebello with the days other news headlines.
4: Thanks, Marcus. Exit polls suggest Israel's former Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is on course for victory in the country's general election. It would give his right-wing bloc a slim majority of seats over his centre-left opponents, but that could change as remaining ballots are processed. Brazil's far-right president Jair Bolsonaro has spoken for the first time since being defeated in Sunday's presidential election. However, Bolsonaro did not acknowledge that he had lost the contest. We'll have much more on this story in just a moment and a pride of lions briefly escaped from their enclosure at Sydney's Taronga Zoo earlier. Officials issued a Code 1 alert and rushed guests, who were part of an overnight stay, to safety. Police have visited the zoo and an investigation is now underway. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Marcus.
0: Thank you very much, Carlos. In Brazil, the outgoing president, Jair Bolsonaro, has broken his silence following the country's presidential election. Let's get an update now with Monaco 24 senior correspondent Fernando Augusta Pacheco. Fernando, we have finally heard from Jair Bolsonaro. He didn't quite admit his loss, but still sent an encouraging signal. Este cidadão continuarei cumprindo todos os mandamentos da nossa Constituição.
5: Now, Fernando, what did Jair Bolsonaro say there? So, in this clip, uh, basically saying, as a president and citizen, I will continue to fulfil all the commandments of our constitution. So, it's quite interesting, Marcos. I mean, okay, officially he didn't consider that he he didn't even mention the name of Lula in his speech. But that's a way to say that he, you know, he will work with, you know, with the Brazilian democracy. He's kind of accepting the result. And his chief of staff, uh, Ciro Nogueira, gave an interview straight after that very short speech he gave, two minutes, I think a lot of people were disappointed uh, by that. And his chief of staff said, you know, we are already working with uh, President Lula. He even said the name uh, of Lula. So, of course, it, it was a little bit of an undignified kind of uh, concession speech, uh, you know, uh, but, but, you know, it's not as bad as some were predicting, including myself as well. Indeed, the, the preparations for Lula's presidency have
0: begun already. Uh, can you tell us any more about how this transition is now working with Bolsonaro's
5: team? Well, first of all, this transition period is, is a tradition in Brazilian democracy. has been working very well. It usually lasts for about, uh, you know, two months because Lula will become president on the 1st of January. Uh, and, you know... And, and of course, you know you have to talk about what you're going to do with the economy, with the with the welfare state programs as well. And Lula chose his transition chief, uh, Geraldo Alckmin, his vice president as well. Uh, and I think it's an interesting choice. I think that's a way of Lula saying that his government would be a centrist one. Uh, Lula knows that you know even with his choice of ministry, which we don't know much about it, I don't think it would be a very left wing one. I think There will be elements uh, and people from other parties, from center-right parties as well, from the center. And, of course, some left-wing as well. Tell us more about
0: what Jair Bolsonaro said in that
5: two-minute speech. I mean, he's a narcissist, of course. He was thanking for the 58 million of votes that he got. He said that now Brazil finally has a right-wing movement, uh, you know, and, and, you know, that he believes in family, in God, in property. Uh, you, you know, so he signaled that he will be very much present uh, in Brazilian politics, even though he lost now. And from what I saw as well in the newspapers, PL, his current political party, will give him a salary every month, a big mansion as well for him to stay. So it, it's a way of saying, you know, we're still counting on his uh, incredible power uh, as well, because, I mean, he got 49% of the votes. So he wants to capitalize on that. And, and and I have a feeling we might, we might see him on... On, on, on the election in 2026 as well.
0: What is keeping Lula busy at the moment? Obviously, he will only start his presidency officially in January.
5: I mean, the remarkable thing about Lula is being has been the international reaction. There's even been some jokes that Brazil became uh, from a pariah country to the darling of the moment. I mean, the whole of the international community, markers, uh, you know, from from Joe Biden to Zelensky. I mean. Literally everyone congratulated Lula. And he also being invited for COP27 already by the Egyptian president. You know, it seems that he will be going there and apparently chooses his environment uh, minister there, but it's not entirely confirmed. And I believe he would choose Marina Silva, a very respected environmentalist and politician in Brazil as well.
0: That was Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Thank you very much for this update. You are listening to The Briefing on Monaco 24. Mm. The U.S. polling agency Gallup has released its last look at the priorities and general mood of Americans ahead of next week's congressional midterm elections. And it makes for some pretty grim reading for Joe Biden and Democrats. Monaco's Washington correspondent Chris Jermak has been speaking to Lydia Saad, the director of U.S. social research at Gallup. She began by describing how the economy is having an impact on the election.
1: This year is an election when President Biden's job approval rating seems very linked to Americans' weak confidence in the economy. So he has a 40 percent job approval rating in our final poll. And when we ask Americans about current economic conditions, they're far more negative than positive in rating the economy. The economy rating feeds into President Biden's job approval rating, which um, doesn't bode well for his party. The other election that's similar to this would be 2010, which was President Obama's first midterm election year. He went into that election with a 45% job approval rating, which is also pretty low. Anything below 49, 50% is as challenging for an incumbent in an election year. And economic conditions ratings were almost exactly as weak at that time, coming out of the 2007 to 2009 recession with very high unemployment at that time. So Negative economic perceptions in 2010 fed into President Obama's weak job approval rating in 2010, and his party lost 63 seats in that midterm year.
6: So the economy is a priority for many voters, but tell me more about the polarization in this election, also in terms of the main topics that voters perceive to be at issue.
1: We see polarization in almost everything we ask about, but certainly partisans, depending on whether their president is in power or not, are going to upplay or downplay problems. So, Republicans are much more likely to say the economy is extremely important to their vote than Democrats, because they give a much worse diagnosis of the economy when we ask them to rate the economy. Democrats don't think the economy is all that bad, they think it's getting better. And only 33% say the economy is going to be very important to their vote. And we see that on all the issues, so on immigration. The percentages rating that extremely important are 55% for Republicans, 22% for Democrats. Crime, 55% of Republicans, 27% for Democrats. Abortion is the one issue, really one of two issues that goes the other way. So 51% of Democrats say abortion will be extremely important to their vote. It's only 37% for Republicans. And then the most extreme difference is on climate change with 49% of Democrats rating that extremely important. 9% of Republicans. So very different perspectives about what's important in this election. We do live in a polarized world.
6: Yeah, there's certainly no question about that at the moment. But I did want to ask you, in terms of the polarization that you are seeing on topics, the way you describe it, between the things that voters care about, is that something you saw in previous election cycles as well, or is that a new trend?
1: Not really. I've been doing this since at Gallup since 1992, and there's always been like a Rorschach test when you put issues in front of people. The partisans are just going to view those issues through their lens. So it's not brand new. What, what has gotten more significant is partisan ratings of the president, There was a time when if things were going well in the country, relatively well, that you might see 40% of the opposite party approving of the job the president's doing. Or we saw a lot more what we call rally events in the past where when there's a threat against the United States or some major galvanizing worldwide event such as COVID, that you would see a rally among all partisan groups for the sitting president. All of this sort of started eroding, I would say, during the Iraq War, when partisanship, and and I don't know if it was the Iraq War so much as that kind of conflated with the start of social media and maybe the intensification of cable news, that there became less of a willingness to see positive in the other side, especially when looking at the president. know, that'll be interesting going forward to see if that ever reverses that, or if this is just the partisan, just rigidity that we're stuck in right now. Now, you didn't
6: necessarily ask about democracy or threats to democracy or election integrity in this specific poll, and whether that's a priority for voters. But what is the polling in general saying about that issue?
1: I think both political parties are concerned about election issues, but they have different concerns. So, Democrats are concerned about access and Republicans are concerned about fraud. So in terms of trusting the outcome of elections, you know, both sides, when the election doesn't go their way, have things they can point to. Either certain groups of voters must have been suppressed or certain votes weren't counted. There is like a pall over elections, just like there is on many institutions where public trust has just eroded over time on something that used to be just went without saying that we'd have an election and candidates would accept the results and the public would lick their wounds and move on. But we have seen in our trends, you know, confidence that the votes, you know, will be accurately counted, cast and so forth, some erosion of that.
6: And just finally, to end on a slightly happier note, what is the enthusiasm level like in the electorate and how is that going to impact turnout in these midterms, do you think?
1: So actually, we have two measures. It's attention to the election, which is actually the way we ask it, is how much thought have you given to the upcoming elections for Congress? Quite a lot, or only a little. So we monitor that quite a lot percentage as an indicator of turnout. And Gallup has been asking that question since... The 1940s. So we have 49% of Americans saying they're giving quite a lot of thought to the election this year. Presidential years you can see that go into the 60s. But in midterm years, you know, bumping up to 50% is pretty high level, but it was higher in 2018. So we're looking at decent turnout, not historically high. We separately, as you put out ask about how enthusiastic are you about voting, When we first started asking that, that was sort of a new measure that we instituted in the early 90s. We thought it might be another indicator of turnout. It turns out not to be. What it's doing is picking up partisans' perception of how well their party is doing in the election. And voters are enthusiastic if they think their party's ahead and vice versa. So voters are usually right. They're usually picking up on the cues from the polls and the pundits of which party is doing well. And so oftentimes we can't tell you what turnout's going to be by party, but we have an indication of who's likely to win based on how partisans answer that. This year, we're seeing Democrats a little bit more enthusiastic than Republicans about the outcome. But this poll was conducted first three weeks of October, we're not quite sure if we were to re-ask that today, if we'd see that partisan gap where it might have closed based on some of the uh, polls now coming out in the key races, showing the races tightening up. But overall, enthusiasm's relatively on the high side among both party groups. What's interesting is enthusiasm is low among independents. 57% of Democrats enthusiastic, 49% of Republicans, only 35% of independents. They've been more enthusiastic than that in past midterms, we wonder if that's just sort of a political exhaustion figure.
0: That was Gallup's Lydia Saad speaking to Monocle's Chris Chomak. Now according to the latest figures, the US labor market is still in good shape. Bloomberg's UN Potts can tell us more. Hello Yuan. what are those numbers like?
7: Hi, Marcus. Yeah, The US Federal Reserve looks set to deliver a fourth straight super-sized rate hike at its meeting later on today. Now, the world's most important central bank expected to raise interest rates in America by 0.75% to a range of 375 to 4%. That's as the Fed continues its most aggressive tightening campaign since the 1980s. Now, we'll get a press conference from Jay Powell 30 minutes uh, after that decision. Uh, we're expecting him, unsurprisingly, to say that the Fed remains steadfast in its inflation fight. He's probably going to leave his options open though for their next meeting in mid-December. Markets currently split between whether we'll see another big rate hike or perhaps a shift down to something a little bit smaller, maybe a half a percent hike but we do expect US interest rates to continue uh, rising uh, for the next uh, couple of meetings. We did have that data on the US labour market and it was one of those cases of good news being bad news for investors. Another strong reading for the US labour market. Job openings in America unexpected rebounded in September. Uh, there are now 10.7 million open jobs in America in September. Economists are expecting that to drop below 10 million. So job openings increasing, that means that the US job market is still very, very strong. And that is another risk for the Fed, of course, because uh, that uh, means that there's always a, a risk of more wage growth and that will make the inflation picture worse for the Fed. So good news for a lot of people, but it is very uh, tricky news for the Federal Reserve.
0: And in other news, results are out today from the world's largest owner of container ships.
7: Yeah, fascinating company this Maersk, a real bellwether for global trade. The Copenhagen-based company now says that it expects global container demand to decline by between 2% and 4% this year. Now, you might think that sounds like a a reasonably robust outlook, but it was expecting between plus one and minus one in its last forecast. Maersk has really been a fascinating company, which has reflected the ups and downs of the economy during the uh, pandemic. The company has seen uh, many quarters of surging profits. uh, shipping rates absolutely rocketed during the pandemic with a a lack of uh, supply and lots and lots of demand as people stayed at home and spent a lot of money on goods because they couldn't go out and spend money on services. And now the deteriorating outlook for the global economy really being reflected in the earnings uh, by the the Danish uh, company. Uh, We spoke uh, on Bloomberg TV to the CEO today. He says that global trade is moving backwards this year. And certainly, durable goods are down. Probably, a lot of people overinvested in durable goods in the early part of the pandemic. Um, exciting to see that uh, unwinding now. Uh, and unfortunately, on the inflation story, there was also, um, I think, some more bad news from Musk. Uh, the company's uh, CEO told us that freight rates are coming down, and that is going to detract from inflation. But he says we still have very high energy costs and also a very, very strong labour market in most countries. So a fascinating reflection on the global economy uh, from the boss of Mesk.
0: Absolutely. Bloomberg's UN Potts are there. Thank you very much for this update. You are listening to The Briefing. And finally, on today's programme, the world's first theme park dedicated to the works of Studio Ghibli has opened in Japan. It's hoped that the new attraction near Tokyo will provide a much-needed lift to Japan's economy as the country begins to reopen to the rest of the world. Well, let's get the latest now with Monaco's senior Asia editor and Tokyo bureau chief Fiona Wilson. Fiona, good evening to you. How much can you tell us about this new theme park?
2: Hi, Marcus. Well, I mean, it's been so anticipated, this park. I mean, if you know anything about Studio Ghibli Animation Company in Tokyo, I think it's 37 now, this company. And it's made just some of the biggest films uh, that have come out of Japan in the last few decades. Films like Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro, Howl's Moving Castle. Absolutely epic films that are, you know, huge in Japan, obviously, but uh, have a big soft power outside as well so they've opened a theme park big surprise to everyone because they're quite publicity shy oddly for a film company but they've opened a theme park in aichi in the middle of japan it's actually in the the park that was built for the 2005 expo and the first chunk of the park opened yesterday so to great excitement and the reviews are, are starting to come in now
0: what are the highlights out of the theme park
2: Well, if you know anything about the films, and I have to say, if you go, I'd recommend you watch the films first, reading about it. I've seen them all. I love them all, actually. But um, it basically, you know, takes you through. There are scenes from the films where you can photograph yourself. You know, if you know any of these films, you could appear on the train that is in Spirited Away. You can, you know, get yourself on Instagram at various of key scenes in there. the films, but there's also uh, I think something that people will love is there's a forest that's opened, and you know this this film My Neighbor Totoro, which is really one of the most popular films from the studio. They've recreated the house, and if you know that film, it's an old you know rundown old house, magical place in the countryside. They've recreated that. Obviously, there's a shop. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> wouldn't be a, wouldn't be a theme park without a load of merchandise, so people can buy all the bits and pieces. But it's interesting. They're really careful on the website to say you know, this is not like every other theme park. There are no rides. You know, they don't want people to think they're coming to Universal Studios or, you know, Disneyland. They say, take a stroll, feel the wind, discover the wonders. I think it's a bit like the films themselves. It's not all, you know, given to you on a plate. You have to work a bit with these films. And I think it's the same with Ghibli Park. You want to know the films. You want to find out more.
0: What kind of feedback have you heard so far? Has there been any criticism that maybe this theme park should have been done another way?
2: Well, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that, tourists are complaining about. They're not selling tickets overseas yet, so that could perhaps be a little complaint. Uh, At the moment you have to buy the tickets in Japan, and obviously it's massively popular, so that will be difficult. I mean, I think the whole process of making this park has been really interesting. It's made by Goro Miyazaki, who's the son of Hayao Miyazaki, the legendary director behind Studio Ghibli. They have quite a fractious relationship. Hayao Miyazaki is pretty critical of um, everyone, including his son, so... (laughs) (laughs) There was some hilarity when, uh, you know, Goro said the reason he wanted to make the park was because Miyazaki Senior announced his retirement. I have to say he's done that several times. And immediately he then said, actually, I think I'm going to make another film. So uh, Goro, the son said, I feel like the rug's just been pulled from under my feet. You know, his idea was let's make a sort of. Not exactly a memorial because Miyazaki is still alive. The films are still very popular, but let's remember these films. So I think the reviews are people are hoping that more of it will open at the moment. Only three of the five sections have opened. I think it's pretty, I mean, to say it's analogue maybe is unfair. I haven't seen it in person, but I'm getting the sense that it's not all bells and whistles. You're not going to be on a roller coaster. You're not going through kind of water features it's fairly low key in a sense, and I think that that is maybe a bit surprising to some people. I think if you know the films, you won't be surprised. There's a massive craft element to uh, Miyazaki films, uh, you know, and of course this incredible hand drawn element to to the films, which is partly why they're so so loved. They create this amazing world. It's probably difficult, honestly, to recreate that world. And I know some people have said, oh, I wanted it to be more like the films. And that 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 is obviously going to be difficult. And maybe people who love the films and they do really draw you in these films and you get into that world, that anime world, uh, maybe that will be difficult. But but let's see, I, I keep an open mind.
0: Absolutely. The opening of this theme park is also an important statement, considering that Japan is gradually reopening to the rest of the world. How big of a boost do you think this theme park will offer?
2: Well, I mean, the films are incredibly popular around the world. And then recently, I mean, you know, famous Studio Ghibli for being very controlling about the rights, but they did give up the rights to... We'll not give up the rights, but Netflix has been streaming in some regions, they've been streaming the studio Miyazaki films, people here were quite surprised they did that. But they, they have put them on, you know, so that people can get to know them better, I think. And you know, you just look at the value of this anime industry, it's huge. I mean, globally, last year, it was 24 and a half billion dollars. And they think that by 2028, that number will go up to more than $47 billion. So it's a massive, massive industry. And I think, People are looking for something interesting, something new to see. So I think, particularly in that bit of Japan, doesn't draw an awful lot of tourists. Aichi. It's more famous for, you know, Toyota. So uh, I think it will be interesting to get people into that that part of Japan. And I I I think it will be completely sold out. And if they open up the rest of the park, they which they will. But if they open up those tickets to uh, overseas visitors, the chance of visiting it in person will get smaller and smaller.
0: Will you be going there anytime soon? Have you booked your tickets yet?
2: Do you know what? I will definitely be going. My kids absolutely love those Miyazaki films, and it's interesting. They're amazing, those films. You can enjoy them as a five-year-old or as an adult. It doesn't matter. There's so much to draw from those films. And Miyazaki was way ahead of his time on you know subjects like environmentalism. So Mononoke, Princess Mononoke, really, which will be one of the new um, chunks that's opening maybe next year. So I'm definitely going. Sign me up. But at the moment, yeah, I can't get my hands on a ticket.
0: I hope to see you there as well. Monocle's Senior Asia Editor and Tokyo Bureau Chief Fiona Wilson there. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday here in London, 8am in New York City. I am Markus Hippy. Goodbye and thanks for listening.